You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. Hey, everyone's ready? Yeah, I'm as ready as I'm, I usually am. <laughs> All right, good enough. All right, today we are joined by our special guest, uh, Jeanette Fennell. She's the founder of Kids in Cars. Um, I, you can probably explain best what you do better than my stumbling through and, and reading over your website, but you can find out more at kidsincars.org. And uh, Jeanette, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. I am so happy to be here with you guys this morning. Thank you. And I, just, just by way of introduction, we worked with Jeanette for decades now, I guess I would say. I know that I got to the center about 2000, almost immediately started working with uh, Jeanette and her team on um, power window issues uh, a long time ago. Um, and they are uh, very similar to the center in many ways, you know, focusing on good data on, on, um, on car issues that affect children. And it's, it's um i would say that of, of all the uh nonprofit groups we work with if nonprofits could have bff kids and cars is probably our bff because we're very similar we're very small we uh work on some some really important issues that are uh you know in many ways some of them are, are misunderstood and misinterpreted by the public and it's 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 issues where it's hard to push the government to do a lot on, but it's really important that we do. Yeah, so I'm just gonna start off with something very, we're gonna start off very light, because I know some of the stuff you work on is gets very intense emotionally. So this is, from my perspective, is very light, because when I watch a lot of movies or TV shows, you always see a scene lately where the bad guy throws somebody in a trunk and there's no escape handle and and michael and i were just talking about this and we're like this was not a 1973 cadillac like come on these are modern cars they all have an escape handle and they glow in the dark and so you and your organization were instrumental in getting this done is that correct yeah that's actually how we got started um and back in 1995 my husband and i and our little nine-month-old baby were kidnapped um, we were living in san francisco at the time and we were taken to um, a very secluded location where we were uh, assaulted and robbed and basically left for dead in the trunk of our vehicle. Um, this is where a little bit of that divine intervention comes in. And um, after our kidnappers had left us there, there was no light source. Um, the car wasn't running. We didn't have any idea where we were. But um, on the way over, you know, when you think you're going to die, you get pretty resourceful. Uh, I had ripped out all the lining of the trunk. I thought, oh, I could, you know, maybe get some of these wires to um, do something funny. Maybe a police officer would notice and pull us over. Or maybe somebody would call 911 and said something's wrong with this car. But, you know, of course, that didn't happen. But by exposing all those wires, um Again, the, the divine intervention here is I saw this light. And, you know, I know Fred, Fred's the scientific engineering, the, the really technical guy. And there's really no way there could have been a light in that trunk. There was no source anywhere. But I saw it and I said to my husband, hey, I think I found the trunk release. 
And those words did not come from my brain, but they came from my mouth and um, put his hands over my body and he felt around a little bit. And he found that cable that engages when you're in your car and you you know pull that button and the trunk goes pink. Well, he found that. He pulled it and the trunk opened up just the same way as it would if you opened it from inside the vehicle. So, of course... I jump out of the out of the back of the car, go to the back seat, and there is no baby. There is no car seat. Obviously, beyond the lowest point in my life, and um, we were then stuck with what are we? You know, what are we going to do? So I kept saying, you know, let's go home. Let's go home. Maybe they took the baby out there, and my husband's like, no, we're going to call nine one one, and. Um, you know, we went back and forth, and and finally, of course, he won. We called nine one one, and um, immediately, like a minute after he called nine one one, this car pulls up by this, you know, the uh, phone booth we were at, and these guys jump out, and I'm like, well, I knew we were going to get in more trouble. Um, but they were undercover cops, so that gives you a sense for um, how unsafe that area was because four undercover cops were driving um, in a vehicle that wasn't marked in any way. But, um, you know, they didn't come and hurt me and they didn't come after my husband. So making a very, very long story short, um, when my husband talked to 911, they also sent officers to our home. So he was on hold, waiting and waiting to hear. And that's when we found out that the abductors had then taken out our nine-month-old baby in his car seat, threw him on the sidewalk, and, um, you know, drove away with us. So there is a happy ending. Um, I always say that the other benefit of car seats is if they, if a child is thrown out in a car seat, it saves their lives because he was nine months at the time. Wow. And of course, he would have crawled into the street because we don't have front yards. So after that happened, I said, this is crazy. You shouldn't be able to put people in their own trunks and worked very, very hard and collected data when there was none. And four years later, we had a federal safety regulation that now requires all vehicles 2002 or newer to come with that little glow in the dark truck release. And the best, 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 best news ever is we have been not been able to document one person who has died in the trunk of a car that has that little release. That's amazing. I mean, on so many levels, that's amazing. I mean, the fact that in four years you managed to get federal legislation passed to do this, that alone is phenomenal. Um, and, and did anyone in the auto industry fight against you and say, no, we can't, this is too expensive? Oh, they sure did fight. <laughs> and. <laughs> The reason I got it done in, in such a short period of time is because I didn't know what I was doing. You know, once I learned what I was doing, it took longer and longer and longer. But um, yes, the auto industry said no. And um, in fact, in 1979, you know, decades before, there was someone who'd written in, asked for trunk releases. And um, at that time, Joan Claybrook was the um, NHTSA administrator and, you know, she told the car companies they should do this. And, you know, 
when the NHTSA administrator asks you to do something, you, you check into it. And we were ap- actually able to get the notes from General Motors. And, and how much do you think it cost per vehicle in 1979 to add a trunk release at each vehicle? 54 cents. No, less than that. No. Less than 54 cents. Well, how much was it? Three cents. <laughs> and and they wouldn't add three cents. But what, what's the reasoning behind this? Hey, it costs too much. <laughs> uh, what was there? What, what was the cost in the 90s when you worked on getting this done? Was it then 54 uh, cents? I don't think it was much more because if you, you know, if you look in your trunk and you see that little T-shaped handle, um, about three cents, maybe it's less now. And and did they besides just cost? Do they have any other? Who are these? Can we name and shame them, or is it too late at this point? Well, I mean, I think generally most safety upgrades in vehicles are resisted to some extent because of the cost factor in manufacturers. I mean, ideally for them, I think they'd want to sell the same vehicles they're putting on the road right now and just increase the price every year. (laughs) Charge me three cents. Well, you know, it's what they did, which I know now and I didn't know at the time, was they, you know, come up with all these you know, plausible, but not real scenarios. So at that time, they said if there was a trunk release in the vehicle, um, the criminal would further harm their victim. Or they would cut the trunk release off before they put you in. So it was, you know, all smoke and mirrors. And probably one of the my favorite days ever, because we had an expert panel on this issue is when I said, you know, this doesn't make sense to me. If I go to prison with a, you know, notepad and I ask these criminals what they're going to do, is that how you guys get this data? And and the FBI at that time confirmed that there is no way to predict criminal behavior. And, of course, none of the nonsense they've been pushing for decades um, is true or really made any sense. But, of course, it's plausible, so they put it out there. So every time you see a movie or TV show where someone gets put in a trunk in a in a modern car and they're like, come on, why aren't you pulling the trunk release? Do you yell at the TV or is that just me? Uh, um, you know, it depends if I know the model of the vehicle. <laughs> no, the, the happy days happen every, you know, once in a while we do hear and we see on TV. Oh, and the person found the trunk release and they ran out and got away. Those are our favorite days. Oh, um, so uh, another big issue you work on, and Michael sent around the uh, article from the Washington Post on this. And this is a, a very intense article, uh, the Gene Weingarten piece on hot cars and uh, hypothermia. Is that did I get that right? Hi- hypothermia. Hypothermia, um, which, uh, you know, just quickly for for listeners is uh, there's uh, unfortunately these very awful cases where people are driving their toddlers and and forget them in the backseat of the car. Um, and unfortunately, the child dies and expires. And people think, how, oh, how could this ever happen? I would never be like that. And, and uh, you know, recently, I mean, this is not as bad, but two weeks ago, I went into a, a Trader Joe's and I left the car. My son and I went inside and I came back out a half hour later and realized I left the car running, um, which is not as bad, but it's just to show that, like, uh, it just something as simple as that. Yeah, I can I can see where your brain you have a essentially uh, the medical term I believe is brain fart, and and then you just forget that this happens. 
So this is an, another issue that your organization has spent a good deal of time on working on trying to get um, uh, sensors or alerts or alarms some way to get, again, the auto industry to spend three cents to save lives. Well, this might be a few pennies more. Okay. <laughs> but yes, I would really, really advise that your listeners um, pop on and see and watch um, and, and read Gene Weingartner's piece. It's called Fatal Distraction. And, you know, I highly recommend it. it. It really is the best piece that's ever been written about this issue. And let's not forget, it did win a Pulitzer Prize. So it must be pretty good, right? Yeah. yeah I, I, think, I think it's a movie even now. Yeah. The, um, in fact, we have made a documentary of the same name, and it really takes people through this process. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's autopilot and None of us want to admit it could happen to us, but it does. And um, I just want people to know, because there's probably a whole lot of naysayers out there already saying it would never happen to them. But I could introduce you to all the parents who said it would never happen to them. And they would never unknowingly leave a child alone in a vehicle. Of, of course, course not. It happened to them. Yeah, these aren't negligent people. These aren't people who are vindictive. They're not actively looking to cause these problems. Just they, unfortunately, have the worst day of their life ever. Um, yeah, and it's it's one mistake that they pay for for the rest of their lives. So, you know, learn from their mistakes and just understand this does happen to the very, very best parents. Right. So what are the, the solutions that you've and your and your organization has proposed to to help prevent this? Well, we have a great chart on our website and it shows the number of children who have died from overpowered airbags versus the number of children who have died in hot cars. And um, it's a great comparison from 1990 till um, this year. And interestingly enough, when you look at the chart, under 200 children have died from overpowered airbags. And the reason I bring that into the conversation is because that's the reason we moved all of the kids into the back seat. Because of course we don't want these overpowered airbags killing children. Well, when we did that, we made no other modifications. We changed forever the way parents transport their children. We put them in the back seat. We made a law to make sure that, that they were in the back seat. Then we found out that it was safer if you had them rear facing in the back seat. So we did everything we could to hide those little precious babies in the back seat without, you know, making any modifications for that. So what has happened is out of sight, out of mind. Um, you know, we've all driven and gotten on autopilot. Like maybe we've missed our exit or um, you know, we're thinking about the meeting we have as soon as we get to work and we forget about that stop at daycare. So, um, you know, it, we work with Dr. David Diamond, who has studied the issue of prospective memory versus habit memory versus autopilot. And it, there's science that shows how this happens, why it happens. And people don't want to accept that. They really want to think that um, it's bad parents versus good parents. And nothing could be further from the truth. So um, just to 
finalize on that chart, we're talking less than 200 deaths from overpowered airbags. Now that the kids are in the back seat, over 1,000 children have died in hot cars during that same period of time. Wow. And what was that period of time? Was that the last, uh, I don't have the chart in front of me, was that the last decade? Well, it's from, from 1990 till today. Oh. But still, these are preventable deaths. Um, right. Oh, the, the, they're totally predictable and totally preventable. So we've been working on this issue for over 20 years. And um, in November of 2021, we got a provision in there that's part of the infrastructure bill to finally get some technology in our vehicles so we can get a, an alert if a living being was left in our vehicle. And um, we just met with uh, NHTSA last week because the language that was passed was woefully inadequate, inadequate, but they said that they're gonna do the right thing and make sure that the systems that get installed can actually detect the presence of a child. Yeah, so Michael, we, before we started, you were mentioning uh, this a little bit, like what, what specifically is is uh, happening here because I've talked about in the past like the rear seat belt reminder sometimes in my car if there's a bag on the seat it will go off when there's no human there and right I, I mean this is a, yet another area where you know automakers for the most part are trying to get the cheapest passable tech into cars what they want is basically i think they would be happy with an alert that flashed at you on the dash just like a seat belt or remove your key warning every time you got out of the car whether or not there was something in the back seat pet child or whatever um whereas the most effective technology is obviously going to be one that detects a pet or a child specifically i say pet again and again because that's you know, certainly something that a technology that can detect children could do. I mean, it could come in handy in a lot of situations because children aren't the only living things that are left in vehicles. It happens to pets as well. So it would be um, great to have a sensor system that detects the presence of a child in the back seat and alerts the driver loudly as loudly and as annoyingly as possible until that situation is corrected and i think that's where what we're going for but the industry seems to want to put in place systems that aren't quite that effective yeah right right now what you're seeing is what we call end of trip alert um that's how far they've been willing to go and how that works is um just if you open the back door 10 minutes before you go on your journey, that when you arrive and turn the car off, you're going to get, you know, a little notice on the dashboard that says, check the rear seat. And sometimes there's different little dings with it, but it you really don't know what's going on. And um, we already have documented three fatalities of children in vehicles that have that technology. So, what we're looking for it is a technology that's readily available and it can tell you if there's a child, if it's a bag, if it's a dog, if it's an adult, it can tell um, with this technology what's in that seat and if it's living and breathing, you will get an alert. Um, they can go as far as um, call your cell phone and call all your contacts that you set up 
Um, and if none of those answer, I could call 911. So there's so, so many ways to end this. Um, but we, we're still fighting to make sure the right technology added after 20 years of getting and working so hard to get some language that requires NHTSA to do this. Yeah, because if it's just another dashboard light, people are just going to ignore it. I mean, every time I turn on my car, it's like maintenance required soon. I don't know what that means. So I ignore it. Like, wow. I mean. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting because I don't know. I don't look at my dash when I turn off my vehicle. I look at it when I'm starting it, but I don't look at it when I'm leaving. So, you know, there's a lot of flaws in that. But um, NHTSA did tell us that they're going to, you know, make sure that it's done correctly. So we're we're on hope and a prayer that that is the way it's going to be done. And, you know, I don't like to say this all the time, but it just, you know, and I, I don't want to be sensational, but it's just a fact. Um, you can't buy a car today that either reminds you to turn off your headlights or turns them off automatically because, God forbid, we do not want a car battery that goes dead. But for the last 30 years, I guess it's okay for children to be left in vehicles and die that way. Um, I think it's the perfect parallel, and um, let's go. Let's take care of our babies. Wow. Wow. How do, how do you, you work on, do you work on anything that's very light and very like easy going or is everything <laughs> literally life and death? Cause it's I don't know. Death. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's life and death. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're doing it. I, 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 I yeah, I can't even speak. Um, Great. Uh, Jeanette, Jeanette, we need you on more if that's the case. Yeah. <laughs> if I didn't speak, the two of you just sit there and just stare. Come on. Um, so other issues we've talked about a lot on the show are the front overs and back overs and, and Fred's done a lot to explain kind of, uh, what's happening there. And he told all the listeners to go out and buy the largest SUV possible, um, and to procreate as much as possible at the same time. I thought it was a weird choice, but uh, you know, he's the engineer, not me. Um, so what's, uh, so front overs, as we've talked about before, it's these giant SUVs. You can't see in front of them. There's a bunch of people have done, uh, video demonstrations. You can see online where like, if you're in a Cadillac Escalade, you can have something like a half a dozen kids sitting in front of the car and you won't see it to like the seventh kid because of the angle of, cause you get to sit higher than everybody on the road, including small people. Um, yeah. So what's, uh, what's the latest happening there? Well, I'm really glad that you're um, watching these demonstrations we set up because they do, you know, make an impression. And I don't think people have any appreciation for how much they cannot see in front of their vehicle. And again, as you guys go over all the time, you know, people are buying these massive vehicles that are high off the ground and have incredibly comp complicated and um, line zones where you just can't see if, if there's a person or a bike um, in front of the vehicle. So what we're trying to do is to take care of that problem. Um, you know, it is impossible to avoid hitting something you can't see. We all realize that, right? Yes. Yes. And that's what we're dealing with right now. So there's you know, plenty of technology that um, has happened. We're actually the organization that's responsible for getting the 
backup cameras as standard equipment in all vehicles. Really? Thank you. I, it's, I love yeah. it. Well, and, and we knew that 20 years ago, and um, I had been the adopter of technology long, long time ago, and it took a, a long time to get that passed. But we were all backing blind, and I couldn't believe for 100 years of um, making vehicles, there was no rear visibility standard, zero. I mean, and and that's all we were asking for. It manifested itself in rear view cameras, but that is um, how that came to be. So we want to do the same thing with front overs is it's impossible to avoid hitting something you can't see. And a lot of vehicles have um, maybe a front camera camera or um, a 360 degree system. I don't know if you've um, seen many yeah. of those. I sometimes they, they warp the, the area around you and it looks like a strange video game on Tesla's or things like that. Yeah, it gives you a 360 view or it's called a bird's eye view because you're looking from the top. I have that on my vehicle. I absolutely adore it. And it lets you see everything that's around the vehicle. Um, and that's what's needed because little ones come out of nowhere and they follow their parents. We call it the bye bye syndrome. And before they know it, it's too late. Okay, so something like that is definitely more than three cents. And I know they'll argue against you. Be like, wait, this is going to cut co- all those cameras. That's going to cost us $30 or whatever it is because we buy everything in bulk. Like the the backseat sensor, I imagine like, I don't know how much is a, a weight sensor. Like, I don't know, Fred, do you have any idea how much a sensor costs? You're not on sensor.com all the time? Oh, look at that. He's muted. But he's being very animated about things, and he's <clears throat> oh, there we go. Ah, <laughs> uh, sorry. No, I don't happen to know how much that sensor costs, but I, I do know that a typical micro switch costs about a buck and a half. Um, I assume that that is the range of price for what a you know weight sensor would be. Okay, and the cameras. Well, like- actually, actually, we're we're not looking to do it based on weight, where um, the technology. Um, it's like radar and it can tell if like there's a breathe, if someone's breathing and, um, it can tell you the difference between, like I said, a human being and a parcel or a dog. And, um, it actually is something that would be installed. I call it the, the ceiling of the car. Everyone else calls it, of course, the headliner because that's the right <laughs> word for it. But just it's a little microchip can get installed up there and. It does all sorts of great things. Um, It can tell you if a child's left behind. Um, It can tell you um, if the person's buckled up or not. So I see this as a cost savings because rather than all these seatbelt reminders, they could just use that technology to determine um, if people are buckled up. And, you know, there's all sorts of benefits of it. So come on, let's go. It's time to come into the 21st century. Right. I did see a presentation on that at the, at the SAE meeting, uh, in Washington earlier this year. And it seems to be very effective. It seems to have a lot of resolution and is very sensitive. Uh, they didn't talk about the cost of it though, but I suppose in bulk, it would be, you know, like any other microprocessor based object, uh, something that is affordable. Uh, do you have any idea, you know, what the cost of that would be or what it's projected to be? 
Well, um, some of the estimates we've been giving is, is about $50. But remember, if you take out all the seatbelt reminders, right, and it can also have automatic airbag suppression, um, besides detecting the presence of someone's left alone in a vehicle, I think $50 sounds like a pretty good deal. And it might be a cost savings. Because airbag suppression on the passenger front passenger side, that's just a little weight sensor, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's that's typically yeah. typically. I think they leave it open to whether they can do it a better way, but um it's a weight mainly a weight sensor for around I think it's around thirty to thirty five pounds in most vehicles, which is why my dog sets it off. Well, your dog needs to go on a diet. We've discussed that. <laughs> so okay, so then I see the the objection if you have this thing in the in the headliner that's sending out radar waves or sonar or something like that then you just get the feedback the, the pushback is going to become from the people who thinks that bill gates put microchips in their arms recently with the covid vaccine but they're just fun those people well maybe if they attach their iphone to the headliner they really <laughs> realize how we're being followed and detected that's actually a better idea. Just put your phone in the headliner. We'll use that. It will charge and, and check everything for you. I like that idea. But then you have to put your phone down. Oh. It's oh, maybe. You have to put your phone up. Yeah, you get a lot of neck strain. You know, a lot of spine problems will be happening for people. Okay. Well, so how, are you gonna, how are you going to play Wordle in your car if you've got the iPhone up in the headliner? I don't understand how you do that. You know, I finish. Well, you could add another mirror. Yeah, more mirrors. I, hey, we all want mirrors on everywhere inside a car. Uh, all right, back to um front overs too for a second. I, we we kind of jump back to rear seat rear rear uh, hot cars again. But on the front overs, I think the 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 biggest challenge challenge that we face there is when trying to get a federal standard put into place or trying to get legislation put into place. You, you have to. Um, you have to show that there is a benefit to be gained by the installation of this, the, this technology. Um, and to do that, you have to show that there are a lot of crashes of this type, front overs in driveways and on private property and parking lots, that kind of thing. And the problem is it doesn't collect good data on any of those incidents because for whatever reason, due to NHTSA's authority as uh, protecting people on public roads throughout the course of their history, they have really shied away from collecting data on incidents that happen off-road. Um, this first, we first encountered this, I believe, in the early 2000s when we were looking into Ford Crown Victoria police vehicles that had a gas tank um, behind the rear axle, I believe, and it was being hit uh these police vehicles were being hit and catching on fire frequently and we couldn't find these crashes in the federal data and we didn't know why and it was because once those police vehicles were pulling off the side of the road they were no longer considered a vehicle in transit according to the coding manual and so those crashes were being excluded from the federal data and here we have a very similar issue where it is incredibly difficult to locate and to track front over incidents because there just isn't data being collected on them. Well, and Michael brings up um, the point that we've been working with because when we tried to do something about truck releases, 
It was no data, no problem. So literally, I had to provide the data to the national government. But but then people would call me and say, what about power windows? What about kids knocking cars into gear? So believe it or not, it took an act of Congress to get NHTSA to start collecting data that happens off the public road or highway. And I think it's important for your listeners to know that when we talk about the 43,000 people that have died um, in the previous years, we're talking just about incidents where one, there was a crash, two, the crash happened on a public road or highway, and three, the person died within 30 days of that incident. So there is a lot of stuff missing, missing from there. And when we were able to get that bill passed for the government to start collecting some data of, about things that happen off of our public roads or highways, um, the first report they came out with showed another 2,000 people had died and importantly, another 850,000 people went to the emergency rooms every year from non-traffic incidents. 850,000 per year? Yes. And that's just in hospital emergency rooms. So there's a ton we don't still know about. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, tons and tons. So um, that kind of has been our claim to fame is this whole issue of non-traffic because um, that's where the incidents we try to fix tend to happen. Okay, so I got to clear this up because my naive brain thinks that, okay, that NHTSA you know, regulated cars of some sort. And I didn't realize once my car was on my driveway, it was no longer a car and they didn't care about it because they, they do track battery fires, right? And like engine fires and they're having with parked cars on in my driveway. I don't have a driveway, but still. So they track fires, but not. Those wouldn't, you know, those fires aren't going to show up in the um, fatality analysis reporting system, which is the FARS is what we call it, which is what NHTSA uses to track um, fatal crashes. Um, Those would probably show up when when NHTSA does get a report of a battery fire occurring like that. Those are going to come directly from either the owner of the local authorities or the the automaker, maybe insurance. Um, But there's not going to be a record in the federal data. Okay, so when I accidentally drive over some people because I can't see them in my car, I don't report that because I feel like it's my fault. Is that kind of what happens? And the only time the government finds out is if we go to the hospital and they ask what happened? It's literally based on police reports. And the, and the, and the, and the, there was if there's a crash report, it has to happen on a public road for it to make it into the the... Uh, it has to be actually a vehicle in transit um, as part of the crash to make it into the federal data. But it, it, so my car is not a car unless it's on a public road. That's what I'm hearing. Well, I'm, gl- I'm glad you're making that point because that, that'll help us with some ammunition. But yeah, basically, um, if you're not in a crash on a public road or highway and die within 30 days, you're not going to make it in that data. Now, like I said, we were able to get an act of Congress, and now there's something called not in traffic surveillance. But um, it's pretty basic. They don't update it as frequently as they should, and kind of goes back to no data, no problem. But, you know, we keep at it. 
and um, we're just really watching out for those things. And we are the only ones that are collecting data. Oh, my word. All right. So uh, another thing in Michael's list that he sends out to us ahead of time, uh, power windows, power seats. Now, I thought the power window issue was taken care of uh, over a decade ago where, you know, when it felt resistance, kind of like garage doors, they start going down. Um, they wouldn't continue to strangle somebody. But it was recently in the last year, I think Tesla had a recall on that because their windows were continuing to go up. So this is still an, an issue where people are getting heads, fingers, toes caught inside and power windows are not stopping? Um, yes and no. <laughs> um, we tried to get a federal regulation that would make safer power window switches and have auto reverse on every window. But we were only halfway successful. Um, we were able to get safer power window switches. Because in the past, I don't know if you remember, they were kind of a, a rocker or a toggle, you know, right. type of switch. And what would happen is, you know, dogs or little children, you know, the window would be down and they get up and put their knee on, on that switch. And the window goes up very quickly with a great deal of force, like 30 to 80 pounds of force. And, you know, we call it the silent killer because you know, it immediately crushes their throat and they can't yell for help. So, you know, like I said, we've seen a decrease in the numbers because we have now safer power window switches. And again, I think that's a savings for the auto industry because they all had different switches, you know, all over the car in different places. Now there's standardization, but they didn't go as far as requiring auto reverse on all windows. And that's a problem because if you're the driver and you're controlling all the power windows, you might not know that someone has their fingers or arm out the window because you don't have eyes in the back of your head and put the windows up. So there are still incidents and it would be nice if we had auto reverse on all windows in our view. And and I met Jeanette putting carrots into the window of my 2003 Volkswagen Jetta station wagon way back in my early days at the center. And it had auto reverse 20 years ago, the lowest, cheapest Volkswagen you could buy. Um, so this is not some super expensive technology and it could really ultimately prevent this problem from ever happening if we got auto reverse in addition to the rocker switches into vehicles. So how do you cut your carrots now? <laughs> oh, bad they, you know, no, <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a very effective demo. And, you know, I, I know Anthony always wants to know, well, what were their objections? Yes. And this is another good one. If we had auto reverse power windows, and somebody with a gun, you know, comes to your window and um, is going to shoot you. And if it's auto reverse, when they put the gun in there, you know, you won't be saved. Well, it's very interesting because almost all vehicles have auto reverse in the driver's side window. And for the decades and decades of having auto reverse on the driver's window, We've not heard of anyone who's been killed by a gun because the window went back down. Uh, you know, I don't know. Again, they 
must lay awake at night thinking about these ideas. And there is a chance it could happen. But based on my knowledge, it has never happened. And, you know, if you want to shoot anyone, just go through, you know, shoot right through the glass. Wait, is that a legit argument that they've actually made? That Anthony, Anthony, Anthony we, could, we could do a full podcast on the bullshit that manufacturers roll like, out to avoid regulation. That, this, I mean, that's just one among hundreds of things that have been, it, been used over the years to try to defeat attempts at regulation. I mean, unless they start offering like bulletproof glass standard on a car, that is the dumbest argument I've ever heard. <laughs> hey, people go for it. People go for it. What people? <laughs> Congressmen who are getting picked <laughs> off and lobbying fees. All right, I've done the math. Uh, so with all this stuff, who is the who is the biggest people pushing back on this? Is it the the auto trade industry? Is that what they're what is their lobbying group called? Is it the lobbyists pushing back? Do you actually have members of Congress being like, no, let's save a penny? Um, like what what's the what's the big push back against it because i can't imagine i mean fred could probably speak to this but i can't imagine from an engineering point of view any any engineer being like no if we add in a rear view camera that's going to mess things up it's going to ruin my serious fm radio which i don't listen to like who where where's the where's the pushback besides the bureaucrats and the the accountants or is it just that from a combination of of all those people um you know when you know, there's another process after NHTSA writes a regulation, it goes to a department called OIRA. And when we were doing the backup cameras um, and they were doing some analysis, they were saying it costs like $200, $300 to add these rear view cameras. And the truth of the matter is at that time, they were probably about $5. And I, I'm going to guess now they're down to two, two to $3 because, you know, you can put those all over a vehicle. And it doesn't cost that much, but they were like adding in the monitor. And I'm like, you can't, if the monitor's already there, you can't double count that. Um, so it, it gets creative. You have to stay on your tippy toes and be able to slash all of these rumors in one felt swoop. The mysterious gunman coming for you. Oh, my. Word. That's a good one, huh? <laughs> I, 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 I knew you'd that. like that one, Anthony. That one is amazing. <laughs> Makes me want to go out and get a gun. Uh, I, I, should we uh, move into the to the town and kind of. Well, it's just, um, you know, I just wanted to ask you one question. Is there a, a kind of a, a a Lilliput strategy here where there where people are trying to tie you down with small issues, relatively small issues and uh, nitpicking? objections so that they can keep you from focusing on bigger issues is there is there something you know kind of a bandwidth problem is there something floating around out there that should be addressed that can't be because there are so many other issues that are you know that are being addressed well there there's you know always something that we find out because if you know and you have kids if it can be done it will be done you know, they, they figure out all these um, crazy stuff. But one, one of the things that we're looking into, that's two of them actually that have um, recently come to light. Um, one is submersions in bodies of water. And um, the other one is car thefts when children are left alone. And, um, you know, again, those are two gonna, gonna be two toughies, but uh, 
if we can get some of these other things done, we can really start focusing on those type of things. And then one thing that I also wanted to cover too is rear seatbelt reminders. So rear seatbelt reminders have been in cars since I think the seventies or so we're talking about over 50 years. And I mean, front seatbelt reminders have been in cars that long for the, for the driver. Um, And, there is, there was, you know, our friends over at Advocates for Highway and Auto Safety and, and Public Citizen petitioned that's in 2007, so over 15 years ago, to move, essentially move that seatbelt reminder technology into the back seats, both to encourage people in rear seats to buckle up. Um, and this was long before the age of ride share, where a lot more people were riding in the back seat, but to encourage people in the back seat to buckle up and also to alert parents when children riding the back seat back seats weren't buckled up or had unbuckled. Um, and so it's seeing how many deaths we we have in America every year from people that are unbuckled in the back seat it it really kind of makes this push important but you know it, like i said it's been 15 years since it's received a petition on this they were required in the map 21 law over 10 years ago to put seat belt reminders in the rear seats um Jeanette and I sued them six years ago to get them to finally write the rule on this. And we're still waiting for the rule. So um, that's been a really long process as well. And, you know, getting people to buckle up in the back seats has the potential to save, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of lives a year. Why it's another area where we think the agency should be moving a lot faster, given the, you know, we're not talking about autonomous vehicles here or something that takes 20 years to write a rule on. This is functionally moving a reminder from the front seat to the back that's been you know, in existence for 50 years is from a technological standpoint. Yeah, I, I of course concur with Michael and that's kind of in the bane of my existence. Um, maybe someday I won't have to talk about rear seatbelt reminders, but what Michael was re- referring to is in over 40 to 50% of these fatal crashes, the person isn't buckled up at all or a child's not in a car seat. So, I mean, this is really unimaginable. And again, we met with them last week and they assured me not only is the rule gonna be sent over to OIRA sometime soon, but there's gonna be all these extra benefits. So um, I, I sit, I wait, I pray, because this is such low hanging fruit. Everything that the the industry, the advocates, the government puts out is buckle up, buckle up, buckle up. But yet they're sitting on the simplest regulation they can write to save lives. So it something's very amiss and awry. But again, I've been promised it's going to get over there this year. Yeah, uh, IIHS has a great video showing the uh, crash tests with uh, rear seat belts engaged and not engaged. And I didn't realize this, but you, you know, you're in the driver's seat, you've got your seat belt on, you figure you're fine. If the person behind you doesn't have a seat belt on, you're dead. 
But even doesn't matter. You have a seatbelt on because they basically they fly forward. They crush you forward while the airbag's going off. And yeah, put on a seatbelt. Make sure you don't have a Takata airbag. Um, oh, Anthony, I've got some great um, public service announcements from over the pond that I'll send you. Please. That, yeah, that actually shows what happens when you don't have a seatbelt on. You'll yeah. love them. It's amazing. Yeah. And so, also any, I mean, you know, kind of just a general warning to people, but any type of unsecured objects in your car are going to be a nightmare in a crash. I mean, I think that's something that people don't think about a lot, but it's critically important in a crash that you don't have a 10 pound object flying at your head. <laughs> that's why I gave up bowling. Um, so, so I don't know, uh, Jeanette, if you've been paying attention to the, the conversation that we've been having around autonomous vehicles, um, but we're trying to get, you know, 10 years ahead of these things coming out there. And one of the, one of the, we have this AV bill of rights It's an early draft, but the second item on there is, and I'm going to paraphrase it and Fred's going to correct me in a second, but basically I think relating to kids is have it so the car doesn't respond to a child saying, I want to go to the beach right now. Let's turn around. Let's change the radio station to something else. Let's have it. Let's have this automated vehicle do something that it shouldn't be doing by a kid. I know that was a really bad explanation, Fred, but you know, I, I, I have read it. We love you, Anthony. You're coming along. We appreciate that. Hey, thanks. <clears throat> so, yeah. So, so, you know, what we've been doing is uh, we came up with a set of performance-oriented requirements for AVs that we think is is a void in the marketplace right now because uh, most of the discussion is dominated by boosters of the technology who really want to push it forward regardless of whether or not it's ready because they have investment objectives they have to meet. So we st- introduced these uh, Bill of Rights with these individual requirements last week. We're going to talk about one this week, which is the second one. Um, and reading it verbatim, it's AVs shall secure, verify, and authenticate operational commands and external communications. So this is actually very important because if you have an AV, it's operating, uh, hopefully for the benefit of its passengers and the people around it, but it, it needs to be operated safely. There are attack surfaces that are available uh, from a lot of viewpoints in the car that could interrupt the intended operation of the vehicle. Um, as far as I know, there is nobody right now who is working to secure the communications in these respects. So going through that, you've got to, first of all, secure the communications so you can make sure that nobody is um breaking into the chain of command or uh, the operational commands of the vehicle and causing unintended and and potentially disastrous consequences but even after you've secured it you need to verify the communications because if if somebody you know if you're listening to the radio and it says i'm going to kansas city you don't want the vehicle you that's operating a voice commands to decide, well, all right, I'm going to go to Kansas City instead of the Piggly Wiggly. It's very important to verify the actual information that's coming in and make sure that it's uh, actionable and appropriate. And third is you got to authenticate the operational commands. Uh, you could have a lot of people talking 
in a car, you can have a lot of people sending commands from different perspectives. How does the vehicle know who is the authorized person? In in the case of your horrible experience, which uh, is it makes <laughs> makes me very clump just to think about it. But you know, the, somebody took over your vehicle who was not supposed to take over your vehicle, and they and a really bad thing happened. This could easily happen in an automated vehicle if there's no way to authenticate the command for the vehicle. The how do we know who the person commanding it is? In fact, the right person to be commanding that vehicle. Um, this should authentication, security, and verification of the commands should operate on all of the external and the internal communications that the vehicle might have, whether that's a radio communication or somebody in the car making a verbal command or or a kid touching the touch screen that I know has happened in the past with Teslas where that kid touched the touch screen, all of a sudden the car took off and started to go to that particular location. Um, these are all hazards that are out there that need to be addressed. And we think that this is an important part of what an AV operating system has to include in order to be safe to be used on the highways. Particularly important for kids if there are kids in a car, because, yeah, you could have a, a uh, car full of kids. Somebody wants to go and take their AP English final, where somebody else wants to go to the beach. And if everybody's screaming into the microphone, how does the car know which way to go? If you haven't authenticated the command, if you don't know which command to listen to. I think this is a technically very challenging thing to do. Um, It doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. It just means that there are a lot of challenges ahead for the AV design and implementation that I think really need to be addressed before they can be considered safe to use on the highway. Fred, if, if, um, isn't it really important to hear, not just from the perspective of, you know, humans in the car talking and giving orders, but the command and control, control structure of a vehicle needs to also prevent Vladimir Putin's friends from taking over vehicles in America. Uh, it's, it's broader than just, say, a verbal command and control structure. You need to keep out bad actors from a cybersecurity perspective. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and in fact, we do articulate that it needs to secure and verify the commands that are coming in. That includes both cybersecurity as well as, uh, it could be somebody, you know, walking down the side of the road as you're getting into the car who is, uh, doing something, or it could be a malicious actor who's got an iPhone that is tapping into your car through any port on the attack surface. Uh, you know, there are, places in the car that are using Bluetooth technology to communicate between portions of the car and the car uh, central processor. Uh, for example, the air pressure sensors that are inside of the inside of the tires, they have a wireless connection to the rest of the vehicle so that they can send the information about the air pressure. That is an attack surface. Somebody could break into that and uh, you know have a spurious command. The You would like to have an air gap between the entertainment system and the operational system. This doesn't exist. People have in the past taken over vehicle control by breaking in through the uh, communication system and the entertainment system. So there's, there's a lot to be done on securing this. The problem that we see right now is that there's no requirement 
for companies to do this or to even address it. There's nothing in the SAE, uh, Society of Automotive Engineers, uh, reports or information, J3016 is typical of that, that says you need to do this. There's nothing in the ISO standards that say you need to do this. So uh, we're active in trying to help develop these standards as well. But we think, you know, again, that we need to be on the offense here and say these are minimum standards, not maximum standards, but minimum standards for what's required before these vehicles should be allowed to operate on the streets. I think I'm going to take some inspiration from Jeanette here and and because I don't really know what it takes to get this done. And and you said, Jeanette, when you started your organization, you didn't really know what it took to accomplish these things. And the more you knew, the harder it became. So I'll just go in there from a very naive perspective and push all this stuff through in four years. Isn't that how things work? Everyone's just canceled and closed out of this chat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have to start somewhere. We don't know where it's going to end, but we, we think we've got to start here. I think from I think this I love this with the AV stuff. I think from a parent's point of view, this is just the perfect way to keep kids quiet. You shut up! The car will not take us to Bradley's now. Because, <laughs> yeah, I, but I could be wrong. Well, um, you know, since where I grew up in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, I'm very proud to say that I did shop at the Piggly Wiggly. So, oh um, <laughs> so Anthony, I'm sorry. You're the only one that that doesn't understand the importance of the piggly wiggly. And Anthony is our representative of the coastal elites. I'm afraid he's, uh, he's piggly wiggly deprived. (sighs) Yeah. I'm the coastal elite. I know. I know. I, I, you know, I was hoping, you know, I I didn't know you'd, I thought you were going to be a good guest. And unfortunately I have to delete this episode because you mentioned piggly wiggly and you know, I, we're going (laughs) to, All right. With the mention of Piggly Wiggly, I think we're going to wrap up there. Um, A big thanks to Jeanette Fennell um, from Kids in Cars. Go to kidsincars.org. Find out more. Amazing organization. Um, Really doing work that nobody else could do. I mean, the amount of data that you're collecting and that those databases, it's everyone in the country should send you a thank you note at least once a year. Um, Here's my verbal thank you note. Thank you. Uh, so well, thank you for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Jeanette. Anytime. I mean, as Michael said, you're like uh, the organization's BFF. Um, so, all right. Well, hey, thanks everybody for listening, uh, and uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks, right, thank everybody. you, listeners. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.